important to keep the scriptures in context when we study them, which you will find that I often go back and I do a kind of quick review. And when we come to chapter 10, there's a tendency to go, you forget where you started. And, and, and you have to remember 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 are all tied together around the same central theme, which is the exercising of Christian liberty. And I'm going to review again for you quickly verse chapters 8 and 9 and kind of let you know what to expect in chapter 10. Because Paul hasn't changed anything. He's just, he's still making the same points or the same arguments. He's just going about it in a little bit different way. So in chapter 8, Paul set forth this principle that although Christians, that's us, Christians, believers in Christ, although we're free to do whatever the scripture does not strictly forbid, in other words, the Bible doesn't say you can't do it, you have the freedom to do it. He says, if we love as God calls us to love, we will limit our liberty, our freedom for the sake of weaker believers. So if we love the way that he calls us to love, we might have the liberty to exercise freedom and do something, but if I see that offends somebody else, I might withhold that liberty or withhold exercising that freedom. In chapter 9, he pointed to his own life to illustrate this, and he essentially established that principle to sum it all up for you. Although we have that Christian liberty, although we have those Christian freedoms, we're not required to exercise them. You don't have to use them. It's better sometimes if you don't use them, especially if it's going to cause someone else to stumble. He actually went on to tell us that the misuse of our liberty can disqualify us from effective ministry because they will no longer want to hear what you have to say because you've already offended them. To them it might be sin or their conscience might see it different. Now you've offended them and you've hindered the gospel from going forth. That should always be a concern. We should never want to hinder the gospel message. And last week, as we came to the close of chapter 9, towards we're closing it out, we saw the Apostle Paul, in a, in a great little section, compare our life to the life of an athlete. He talked about us competing in a race, and he told us some things. He said, we should always desire to win the race. We should be doing the best that we can. An, a, an athlete never starts a race expecting to lose. They would expect to win the race. And he reminds us that the prize that we're seeking as believers or as followers of Christ, it's an imperishable crown. It's not one that's going to perish. Someone's not going to take it away from you when somebody becomes younger and faster than you. You might win the race on a physical race this week, but what happens next week? Or the week after that, or when you finally find somebody that's faster than you. Or eventually, you know what's going to happen? You're going to get older. (laughs) Age catches up and somebody younger and faster will step in. It's not like that with our crowns with the Lord. The things that we do on this life matter. We're going to keep those forever and ever and ever. And that's what he's trying to illustrate to us. He also told us we should have our spiritual goals where we're going well-defined. An athlete knows what he's trying to accomplish, and he knows he's on the right path to get there. And we talked about it last week. You need to know where you want to go spiritually. What are you trying to accomplish at the end of your life when it's all said and done, when it's all over? Where do you want to be spiritually? Whether that be this week, because we really don't know how much time we have. Or whether it be 40 years from now, or 50, or 60, or 70, whatever time it is, where do you want to be? And ask yourself, am I on the right path? Because oftentimes we say we want to be over here, but the path we're leading, we're on is leading us somewhere else. Oh, you might get there, big circle, go the shortest distance, be much easier for you. And he also told us that we should be self-disciplined or self-controlled and on that path to achieve what we want spiritually in life. There needs to be self-control or self-discipline in the life of a believer. If you remember, Paul told us that our bodies should be like slaves. But we should see our bodies as a slave helping us to achieve our spiritual goal. Wherever it is that you want to be at the end of your life, I told you last week, I want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter into my rest. That's what I want to look forward to. 
To do that, I have to be disciplined, and you do too, if that's your goal as well. We need to discipline our bodies. Our bodies should be in subjection to our inner man. We shouldn't be led around like our, by our bodies like we're on a leash. Whatever my flesh wants, I just give it. Paul introduced us to this idea that Christians should be disciplined like athletes and exercise that self-control. After all, we're seeking an imperishable crown. If an athlete can do it for a crown that's going to perish, how, more, how much more so should we do it for a crown that's going to last for all of eternity? Now, as we come to chapter 10, Paul's still the same concept, the same idea. Paul's going to give us a bit of a warning. He's going to tell us that Christian liberty without self-control will lead you to a life that is unpleasing to God. You see, he's going to go back and he's going to talk about Israel and the desert and all the wanderings. And he's going to link that to the Corinthian church and how they had all this encounter with God, yet their lives were unpleasing to God. And he's going to say the same thing about the Corinthians. All this encounter, all the spiritual gifts they have, yet their life is unpleasing with God. And he can also say that about the church and the people here in Cumberland. Not only Cumberland, but all over the world. Oftentimes there's Christians who have an encounter with God. They see things of God. They see the Lord working, but their life, if it was to be evaluated, God would say, that's unpleasing to me. And he's going to show us five areas where we should specifically look at our own life to see if it's pleasing or unpleasing to the Lord. So follow along with me as I start in chapter 10, verse 1. I'm going to read the first five verses, then we'll come back and talk about it. It says, Moreover, brethren... I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with them, with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. You see, Paul's going back to Jewish roots, Jewish history, and he wants to prove a point. When he says the word moreover, that should ring something true in your mind. I I've taught you that when you see the word therefore, you ask yourself, what's it there for? When you see the word moreover, you know it's more over the same stuff. It's, it's a continuation of what he's been talking about. It's not something new. Moreover, on top of what I just told you, let me, let me share more with you, is essentially what he's saying. Moreover, he says, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't, want you, I don't want to be an unaware Christian, do you? I want to be aware. I want to know. He says, I don't want you to be unaware. He means he wants to tell us something really important. In other words, if, you're, if you read that, you go, he want, Paul wants to tell me something. I need to pay attention to what he's about to tell me. What do you want to tell me, Paul? And he directs back to the Jewish, the Hebrew past, to their forefathers, and he points to five very important events in their history. Five major events. Now, as I read that, if you're a student of the Bible and you've studied the Old Testament, you know what all those things are. They just fall right in line and it makes perfect sense to you. But if you really don't know too much about the Old Testament, you read those things and go, what's he talking about? I don't, I don't understand a thing he's talking about. Well, I'm going to explain it to you briefly this morning as I can. When he says, all our fathers were under the cloud. All our fathers, all our, all our forefathers were under the cloud. What cloud is he talking about? What's he, what's he really talking about? He's talking about the cloud that followed the Israelites in the wilderness. He's talking about the cloud that overshadowed them. It was the Shekinah glory of God. It was the cloud that provided, covered them through their journey from Egypt to the promised land. During the day, the cloud provided shade for them. You ever been in the desert, in the hot sun? how hot it gets, and when a cloud rolls in, what's it like? Oh, it's refreshing. That's what he's talking about, the cloud. When the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years, the cloud followed them 
And they were able to be contained in the shade of the cloud. He's providing for them. During the night, the pillar of fire was there. They, had a, they could open their tent door, look out the door, and oh, there's the pillar of fire. There it is. The nightlight's still on. We can still see the pillar of fire's there. It was a constant reminder of God's glory and God's presence with them. They looked out and the cloud was there. And the pillar of fire at night, they knew that God was still with them. Wake up in the middle of the night, is he still there? Yeah, he's still here. Good, let's go back to sleep. They knew that he was there. Then he says, all of them passed through the sea. What does that mean? When Israel left Egypt, they were being pursued by the Egyptians. They came to the Red Sea. They were stuck. They had the Egyptians behind them, the Red Sea before them. They couldn't get across. With nowhere else to go, what happened? Well, God parted the waters through Moses with the Red Sea. The waters parted. The Israelites walked through on dry ground. As the last Israelite walked through, they looked back to see what happened. Here comes the Egyptians pursuing them. They're coming through the Red Sea, and just as the last Israelite reached dry ground, the waters collapsed again. All their enemies swallowed up. Can you imagine seeing something like that? Can you imagine seeing God's power on display over human nature like that? That would be amazing to see something like that. God's glory and his power was on full display for him. If I could only see something like that, it would be amazing. And it says all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Well, what does that mean, Rob? The cloud in the desert and the parting of the Red Sea were an amazing picture of God's love and his power. But it was also a picture of baptism. We have a believer's baptism. They're talking about a different kind of baptism. But by passing through the water, by passing through the Red Sea, what Paul's saying is all of Israel now became immersed or identified with Moses. We're, we're under Moses. Moses is our leader. He's the one we're identifying with. They became emerged in the leadership of Moses, just like the believer today in Jesus Christ. When they get baptized into Christ, they pass through the water, and now they're identified with Jesus Christ. The baptism of Moses, when it refers, the Bible refers to that, that's what it's talking about, the Israelites passing through the Red Sea. The believer's baptism it means being baptized into Christ. It's where we, we go down into the water, we come back out. It's our outward sign of our inward commitment that we make. That's why we get baptized, because the Lord commands us to. All were baptized into Moses. And it also said something interesting there. It said all ate the same spiritual food. Hey, food what, have you ever been in the desert and you look around for something to eat? What would you find? Sand. A few lizards maybe running around. Some cactuses. Nothing that would look too appetizing. But it says they all ate the same spiritual food. When Israel was wandering in the desert, the Lord provided miraculously for them. What did he provide? Manna, or bread from heaven. Every morning they would get up and there'd be manna all over the ground. They'd go out and collect their day's worth of manna. If they tried to collect too much, it would mold, except for the Sabbath day. But they would collect their manna. The Lord provided food for them. They didn't have to worry about it. How many days do you think they woke up hungry and worried? Probably the first few, and then they realized, well, the food's out there. The food's out there. There it is for us. And it says... They drank the same spiritual drink. They drank the same spiritual drink. What were they drinking? They were drinking water, but did you catch the end of verse 4? Look what it says. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. That followed them. And notice what Paul said that rock was, or who Paul said that rock was. That rock was Christ. That was Christ. According to Jewish history, when you go back and you read, they believed that the rock actually followed the people in the desert. Can you imagine you wake up? There's that rock. We walked all day. There's that rock. It's still following us. And out of it keeps coming water. It's where we get our water to drink. Amazing. In the, in the, in the desert, in the wilderness, they had baptism. 
the baptism of Moses. They had spiritual food and drink. They even had Christ with them. Do you see the picture there of the New Testament? It's a whole lot like the church. And what are the two ordinances we hold so dear? Communion, spiritual food, baptism. Those are the two things that we hold so dear. There it is pictured for you in the Old Testament. It's there clearly for us. We're baptized into Christ and we enjoy communion with him. That's what it's talking about. But let me see if I can sort of put this into perspective for you. It's believed that a few million people came out of Egypt. So when God, God, God brought 70 people down into Egypt, and when, he, when they left, 400 years later, a few million people come. He birthed a nation with inside of a nation, basically. He moves them out of Egypt. And while wandering in the desert, they personally witnessed the power of God, the protection of God, the glory of God, and the provision of God. They, they got to witness just what those few things that I've listed, they got to see some amazing things. Amazing things. They were provided bread from heaven, which is a picture of Christ, the bread of life. They were provided water from the rock, which is Christ, Paul tells us that. They witnessed the cloud by day, the pillar by night, the pillar of fire by night, shade during the day, amazing light at night. They had all of this encounter with the Lord that was unbelievable. Can you imagine what it would be like if you could just experience one of those things? Yet I want you to see what the Lord said about their lives. Look at verse 5. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Most of them? That's quite an understatement, Paul. Do you know how many people of the adult males that actually left Egypt that went into the promised land? How many of them actually, they, they, were, they were adult, adult age when they left Egypt. Of the two million people, how many of them actually went into the promised land? Two. I'll give extra points for anybody that knows their names. <laughs> Joshua and Caleb. Every other adult male was, body was scattered in the wilderness. They never got to experience the goodness of God. Oh, they experienced what they saw God work. They saw the miracle and the miraculous things happening. But they never got to go into the promised land. They were left, their bodies were left in the wilderness. Only two of them. Why? Because God was not well pleased with their life. God didn't like the way that they were living their life. It means they did not please God with the things they were doing, with the choices they were making, the things they were saying, the way they were behaving in their day-to-day -day activities was not pleasing to God. God was so displeased with them that he didn't even let them enter the promised land. Forty years they wandered in the wilderness. You know how long they were supposed to be there? Two. They were supposed to be in the promised land in two years, but it took 40 because these people, had to, they all died in the wilderness. You see, Paul's point is clear. The Jews had witnessed the power, the protection, the provision, and the glory of God. They'd seen it all. If we could only see something like that, we'd probably say, I'd never sin again. They'd seen all that. But they lacked the self-control in their life. They lacked the self-control in their life and therefore they were scattered in the wilderness and their lives were not pleasing to God. They weren't able to be self-disciplined. They lacked that self-control. The Corinthians were saved. They had, an, they, they had a spiritual experience with God. Paul tells us they had all the spiritual gifts there. They had, they had the spiritual experience. They were taking their Christian liberties to attend the feast of pagan gods. And they justified it by saying, oh, they're really not a God anyways. If the God doesn't really exist. And other people were caused to stumble for it. In doing so, they're stumbling all these other believers because how can you go to a pagan temple and eat of a, of, a, of a feast that was made to a pagan god? 
The other believers go, we were, we were saved out of that. Now you're going back there. And they're going, that's not that big of a deal. We're saved. It's all right. God doesn't really exist. It's in their mind. It's cool. Don't worry about it. That's, that, that was the attitude they had. Like the Jews in the wilderness, they probably thought, we're fine with the Lord. It's cool. We got grace. You know, Paul's teaching faith, grace alone. We're, we're cool. We don't need to worry about this. What happened to the Jews in the wilderness? Their bodies were left there. And the Corinthians are in danger of the same things. Listen what it means to us. Listen very, very carefully. It's quite possible to be saved by God and live a life that is unpleasing to God. As a Christian today, right here in Cumberland, Maryland, it is possible for you to be saved by God and live a life that is extremely unpleasing to God. Your life could be unpleasing to the Lord. You go, Rob, that's kind of a broad thing. How do I really know that? How can we be so sure? In the coming verses, Paul's going to tell us how their life was unpleasing to God. And you're going to have the opportunity to look at your life and go, where does my life fit in there? How does it work for me? Where do I fit in there? You see, Israel was blessed and had spiritual experiences, but they still perished in the wilderness. They never got to enter the promised land. And some of the Corinthian Christians might also. What about us? You see, when we come to an area of scripture like this, it's, I would ask you to open up your heart and ask the Lord to speak to you. Several people came up to me after last service, and after the first service, said, I, were you talking to me? I said, look, I just, we're, we, we go in order here. You know, we, we just go 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2, we're in 10, and if, if, if the shoe fits, wear it. If the Lord's convicting you, then do something about it. Because I can tell you that I will, before I even start teaching this, I will tell you I was extremely convicted in this area of Scripture. I was. And if, you weren't, if you're not convicted by the end of today's message, we just, I'm only going to go through the first uh, uh, 11 verses. You just read verse 12. That'll be for you. That'll be next week. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking the Lord's going to show you something. Now look with me as I read verse 6 through 11, and then we're going to come back and talk to him. Remember, this is how their life was unpleasing to God. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained. I don't like that one. Let's leave that one out. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. As Paul begins to recount some of Israel's failures in the wilderness. Many of them look just like the problems that he's addressing right here at the church in Corinth. They're the same problems that we find ourselves facing today. Lust, idolatry, sexual immorality, tempting of Christ. And complaining. We would think that's not a big deal. We're going to get to it in just a minute. Paul is listing these things as examples. In other words, he's saying to us, you have a chance to learn from those that went before you. He's telling the Corinthians, listen, look back at the Israelites. You can learn from them. I think if he were telling us today, he would say, listen, you've got the Israelites and the Corinthians. Why don't we learn from them? We've got two examples plus many, many more. There's no reason why we shouldn't have it down, right? We can learn from these things. And just a side note on examples, you can learn whether it's a good example or a bad example. Maybe you had a bad parent and you go, that's not how I'm going to parent. Well, you learn from that bad example. Maybe you had a good parent, that's how I'm going to parent. You learn from that example. You can learn from both. And this is what we're looking at here this morning. Let's look at each one of these things that Paul lists and consider this. Each one of these things made their life unpleasing to God. 
This is what the Lord would look around. This is what the Lord would look at and go, I don't like that in your life. That's unpleasing to me. And I would hope that it would be our heart and our desire to have a life that pleases God. Look what he says in verse 6. He says, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. They lusted after evil things. The Corinthian Christians, this is how it fits into the context, they insisted on eating meat sacrificed to idols. They wanted to have it, even though they were leading other Christians astray. Even though it was causing other Christians to stumble, the Corinthian Christians, many of them were going, it's my right, I'm entitled to it. Why? Because they like the taste of it. I'm sure it was well-cooked barbecue. I'm sure it was good. That's why they went there. The feast was fun. It was enjoyable. They enjoyed it. Why did they go? Because they couldn't tell their body no. That's why they went. Cut cut all, all, all the stuff aside, all the nonsense. Why did they go? Because they couldn't say no. They couldn't say, no, I'm not going to eat that. They couldn't look at the, well, it's cheaper meat. No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going. Why? Because it's wrong and it's going to cause somebody else to stumble. They could not say no out of love for God and they could not say no out of love for a brother or a sister in Christ. Instead, it was all about getting them what they wanted. And Paul would say, yeah, you have that liberty, but it's, it's hurting you. It's hurting those around you. You need to learn to say, your, say to yourself, no. Do you find yourself ever lusting after evil things? Maybe it's things in your past. Maybe it's things that you know are sinful. Things that you think about that you once did or once were part of and your mind goes back there. You start thinking about the good old days. Perhaps that's it. Things that you know the Lord doesn't want you doing or even thinking about. I would suggest as Christians, that, and I'll include myself in this, that we learn to tell ourselves no. Sometimes you need to look into yourself in the mirror and say, no, you can't do that. No, you're not going to go there. No. See, as long as there's an option on the table, there'll always be a struggle. But once the option is taken off the table, the struggle is eliminated. Let me say that again very clearly. I know I said it fast. As long as there's an option of doing something wrong, there's a struggle. Should I do it or shouldn't I do it? But the minute you tell yourself, no, that's no longer an option in my life, there's no longer a struggle because it's been taken off the table. The minute you put it back on the table, then it becomes a struggle again. It's real simple. We need to learn to tell ourselves no. If you want to walk after the things of the Lord, if you want a life that's pleasing to God, we need to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, no, I'm not going to let you do those things. You see, that's our inner man. That's our spirit connecting with the Holy Spirit, leading our flesh around. It's when our flesh says, oh, yes, you are. Our flesh, oh, you're going to get a headache if you don't do it. So what? I'm going to make you feel bad. So what? I'm still not giving it to you. The flesh will always come under control after a day or two. It only lasts a couple days. You ever done any long period of fasting? You know what happens? The first day, not so bad. Second day, worst day ever. Try to go to bed the second night, you can't sleep, you're hungry. By the time you wake up the third day, you're like, it's not so bad. Like, I'm not that hungry anymore. Because your body gave up. Okay, fine, you're not going to feed me anyways. You can just keep going and you you can proceed on along. It gets much easier on the third day. If we want to walk after the Lord and you want your life pleasing to God, you've got to learn to tell your body no. The second way their lives displeased the Lord is in verse 7. It says this, Do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. It says they were idolaters. And I know we think this, we got this one down. We don't have little idols in our home. There's nothing, nothing on my shelf I'm worshiping. I've got this. Exodus chapter 32 records for us exactly what's going on. Let me summarize it for you. Moses had gone up to Mount Sinai. He'd been gone about 40 days. The people come to Aaron and they said this. They said, come, make us gods that shall go before us. 
For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, Moses didn't bring him up, God did. They ascribed it to Moses. This guy that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So you make us a God, Aaron. And Aaron says to them, all right, all those earrings you got in your ears, break off your gold and, and give it to me. And, he, and they do. And Aaron takes the gold and he forms it and he fashions it into a golden calf. He makes a golden calf for them to worship. And he says to them, this is your God, O Israel. This is the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Wait a minute. He didn't declare the idol to be a false god. He declared the idol to be God, the same God that brought him out of Egypt. That's what I like to call, he's worshiping the true God falsely. You see, he didn't call the God, the cow, the calf, Baal or Ashtoreth. He, he called it God, Jehovah or Yahweh. He called it God, the same God that would have brought them out. He just made a thing so they could bow down to it. He built an altar before it, and he tells them the next day we're going to have a feast. The next day we're going to have a feast. Exodus chapter 32, 6 says, Then they rose early on the next day. They offered burnt offerings, and they brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink. And then it says, And they rose up to play. And that Hebrew word for play suggests sexual immorality. Sexual play. Understand that there was some sort of drunken orgy going on. Moses is on the mountain communing with God. Getting the Ten Commandments, if you will. And the people are downstairs, down off the mountain. Not really stairs, long, a lot of steps down to Mount Sinai. They're down there having a party. Sexual immorality is abounding. It's crazy. Here's what their idolatry was. Not just the golden calf. The problem was they ascribed the golden calf to God. They became worshipers of the name God, but they weren't worshiping God for who he is. They were worshiping God for who they made him. They molded a golden calf. They called it God. They formed the calf into the image of the God they wanted. It was, we're going to make this God, but he's going to do what we want him to do. He's going to behave like we want him to behave. And we're going to give him sacrifices, and he's going to be happy that we gave him sacrifices. They were going to tell God how he was supposed to treat them. They didn't worship God for who he was. They made him who they wanted him to be. Here's the true worship. They worshiped God falsely. Here's how it works in somebody's life today. Somebody might say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow God. I'm going to worship God. He's going to be the one that I worship. There's not really a true interest in getting to know God. They just want to create a God for themselves to worship. And they're going to ascribe to this God certain attributes that their God will have. And they're going to give him the name of God. And this, this God is going to be graceful and he's never going to judge. He's going to accept me in my sin because he knows that I'm a little weak there. He's never going to hold me accountable. He's going to tolerate my sins and not require that I be set apart from everybody else. I'm going to dictate what this God's going to do and what he's not going to do. Their God will always do what they want. But they'll get mad at him for not doing it. They'll even remake him or pick a different God if he won't do what they want. They might call him God. But they limit his power, they define his attributes, and they set boundaries on how he can operate. That's not the worship of the true God. You see, it works like this. I have a, an acquaintance of mine who I know, and uh, if you were to ask him, are you a Christian, he would say yes. And he would actually probably quote more Bible verses than many of you could quote. He probably knows the Bible better than many of you. But here's what I've come to learn. He doesn't worship the true God. He worships the God he's created in his mind. He even picks Bible verses to ascribe to this God. Because every time his life doesn't go the way that he thinks it should go, you know who he blames? It's God's fault. 
God did it. Every time he's sick or in pain, it's God. Why would, why, would, why would God do this to me? Every time he can't sleep, it's God's fault. Every time there's something wrong, he always blames it on God. Why God? Why God? God, this is, this is God's problem. Why does God do these things? He set God up in his mind as an idol. And he's defined the boundaries. And every time that this idol doesn't do what he wants it to do, he gets upset with the idol. He's not worshiping the true God. He wants a God that will show mercy when he believes mercy should be shown and grace where he thinks there should be shown. And he never wants to look at his own life to take responsibility for his own bad choices, or own take the consequences for mis this, the mistakes that he makes. He always wants his God to be merciful and rescue him from it. But sometimes there's consequences in our life. He doesn't want a God who will hold him accountable. He doesn't want a God who, who will require change. He wants a God who's just going to let him do what he wants to do and still be okay with him. That's what he set up. That's idolatry. It's idolatrous. God is God, and we are nothing more than his creation. It should be our heart to worship him and to serve him and to obey him and could get to know him for who he is, not for who we think he should be or who we want him to be. We need to learn God, meet God, learn the attributes of God for who he is, not for who we set him up to be. This type of life, this type of idolatry is unpleasing to God. When you make God something he's not, or you question God, or you wonder, you know, you, you, it's not pleasing to him. He's God. We're his creation. Humble yourself below him. Honor him, reverence him. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear the Lord, not in a shaking and bouncing my knees, but there needs to be a respect on who he is and a knowledge of who he is and who we are. You can't control, the, nor can I, the very breath in our lungs. It could be gone tomorrow and you don't know. I've been a pastor long enough to where I've done enough funerals where people die unexpectedly all the time. We've all had it happen in our families. You can't be guaranteed tomorrow. This type of life is unpleasing to God. We need to worship God for who he is. Let's look at number three. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Please remember he's talking about the Israelites. These are God's people, not the heathens, not the Canaanites. He's talking about the Israelites here. The nation of Israel was wandering in the desert. Numbers 25 tells us the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They the, they, the women of Moab, invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. The people, as the Israelites ate, and they bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. God had told the Israelites, you stay amongst yourself. You don't intermarry with the Canaanites. You don't intermarry with them, with the Moabites. You, you stay among the Israelites. It's not a racial thing. It's because God understood that if you leave and you go marry somebody who's not equally yoked with you, they're going to pull you away. It's not, it's not a black or a white or an Asian. It has nothing to do with race. It has to do with spiritual maturity, which is what he's talking about. He said, as the Israelites, your worship, you're governed by God. The minute you join yourself to a Moabite, you are no longer governed by God. That's exactly what took place in the scripture. They go to their gods. They start bowing down. They're committing uh, harlotry with them. Now they're joined to God, the, the Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord is aroused. So God tells Moses, take the ones that are guilty, hang them out in the sun. Literally, hang them, kill them, get rid of them. I want to I eradicate them from my people before that cancer spreads any further. I want to get it out of there. And one of the Israelites has the the gall or the audacity in the middle of this to bring a Midianite woman and begin a sexual act right in the middle of all this. And Phineas, the, high, the priest's son, sees it. And he takes a javelin and he kills both of them and the plague stops. 23,000 people died because of sexual immorality. Do you think God thinks it's a big deal? 
Yet we look around at our culture and we go, that's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal to God. A life of sexual immorality is not pleasing to him. This is the people of God. This is not the heathens. This is not the Christians going, well, that's them. No, this is within the people of God. It shouldn't be tolerated. I don't think I really need to explain to you what sexual immorality looks like in your life. I think we're all grown up enough to know what that is. It starts with lust in your mind and is carried out into your flesh. Paul had already addressed the issue of sexual immorality in the church in Corinth back in chapter 6. He already talked to him about it. It's, not, it's, it's a big deal. I guess the real question is, has it been addressed in our lives? Have you addressed it in your life? If, it's, it's an area that if you let yourself go, it'll go. You can, it'll, it'll take you places you never wanted to go. Sexual immorality will make your life and does make your life unpleasing to the Lord. Is it more important to follow your sin and your flesh or is it more important to live a life pleasing to God? You see, I understand that's a big statement because in our culture, sexual immorality abounds. It abounded in their culture too and they were held to the same standard and there's no, th- no, the reason, no reason we should think any different of us. It should matter to us. Look at the fourth way they were unpleasing to God. Verse 9. It says, Nor let us tempt Christ. And some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Numbers chapter 21 describes an incident where in response to the complaining of the people, God sent fiery serpents among the people. It tells us the people became discouraged. You ever become discouraged? Yeah, we've all been discouraged. And in their discouragement, they began to complain against God. And they began to say things that weren't true against God. They said this, God, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water, and we're getting tired of this stupid man, or wherever they would have put it in their complaint. Was there food in the wilderness? Yeah, there was. Was there water in the wilderness? Yeah. Why did God bring us out? We know what the nation of Israel has the potential to become. We have the book. We can read it. We know where they're going. Why did God bring us out? Because God's got a plan for you. Your job is to represent God, the living God, Jehovah God, to the rest of the world. That's why I brought you out. You're going to be a miracle nation. I want everybody to see me in you. But the people became discouraged. So you know what the Lord does? He sends fiery serpents who bit the people and killed them. Well, that's not very nice. After realizing their mistake, the people came to Moses. and They said, Moses, you've got to pray for us. Our people are dying. People are dying left and right. They're getting bit by these, these serpents. And Moses goes to the Lord and says, Lord, what do I do? And he says, put a serpent up on a pole and tell everyone who's been bitten, look at the serpent. Look at the serpent and you'll be healed. I'm sure there were people that said, that's stupid, I'm not doing it. And they died right where they lay. I'm sure there are other people that looked at the serpent, and boom, they're healed. It's real simple. It's God's way or the highway. There's no, there's no other option here. God says, I'll heal you, but it's going to be my way. You've got to do things the way I want them done. But how is this testing the Lord? I don't understand. Help me explain this. Let me put it to you simply. They were more concerned with their own desires than God's glory. It was about what I had to eat, what I had to drink, how I felt. Was I hungry? What, what do I want? And they rejected God's provision instead of being thankful for it. They neglected the fact that God was providing food. God was providing water. But it's not the food that I want. It's not the water that I want. I want something different. It's not the house I want. It's not the car I want. It's not the job I want. It's not the town I want to live in. You see where I'm going with that? They rejected God's provision. They were testing God. And they began to say lies. We don't have anything. We've got nothing. I didn't think that's true of us. We've got, we've been all blessed the next time you're discouraged, don't tempt the Lord. Don't get so focused on your own desires that you lose sight of God's glory and you take away the credit for what he's done in your life. Don't ever get so focused on my poor little pity party or your poor little pity party about what's going on in your life that you lose sight of how 
great and how awesome God is and what he's accomplished for you on the cross. If he does nothing else, the fact that you're saved for your sins, if you wallow in pain and misery for the rest of your life, the fact that you're saved and one day you're going to see him face to face, that should be enough for you to praise him for every breath you have here on this earth. If nothing else, that should be it. But he blesses us so much more than that. So much more he does. So far we've seen some things that make our lives unpleasing to the Lord. Lusting after evil, idolatry, sexual immorality, and tempting the Lord. Are you ready for the last one? Complaining. I think we should just quit here. What do you think? Let's just go home. You guys read it on your own and we'll just... You know I can't do that. I'd like to. Because this is the one that really got me this past week. Verse 10 says, Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. A complaining life is a life that is unpleasing to God. Any complainers out there? I regretfully have to raise my hand and say, yeah, I'm one. I do. The Lord showed me that this week. Let me read to you from Exodus chapter 16, verse 2. The whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the children of Israel said to them, listen to what they say, listen to their complaint. Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. In other words, it's better if we just die. If God just killed us at that Passover thing in Egypt, it'd be better for us. When we sat by the pots of meat and we ate the bread of, to be full, for you've brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. We're going to starve to death out here. It would have been better if we just died in Egypt. We didn't, I don't even know why we came out. We should have just stayed there. Life was so much better. They forgot about the fact they were slaves. They forgot about their workload was increased tremendously. They forgot about their deliverance from the bondage that they were in. Oh, we do the same thing. We begin complaining. It'd been better if the Lord just killed us in Egypt. They're not satisfied with what the Lord had given them. They wanted more. They wanted back. So much so they were looking back. Oh, it would be only better if we could go back to the old life. All the leeks, the onions, all the pots of meat, and all the bread, and all the water. It would be wonderful. Forgot all about how hard they were working and how they were in bondage to the people there. The Lord says, I'm going to set you free. And now their mind is completely the only remembering part of the truth. How often do we do that? You look back at your old life, you only remember part of it. I remember the good, the good old days, right? Remember, remember, please remember all of the good old days. And remember why you got saved in the first place. Do you realize that the Lord just lumped complaining right in there with idolatry, sexual immorality, testing the Lord? lusting after evil things you see we look at it and go complain that that's not that big of a deal i mean come on it's so what i complain a little bit it's it's something we all do we're good at it right and if you're a christian you've learned how to complain like so people don't really know you're complaining you've learned how to no no my complaint's valid i got i got a reason to complain it's it's a legitimate complaint still complaining it's still complaining it's 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 still complaining they were hungry, were complaining. They weren't hungry. They had the provision they needed. They didn't have the provision they wanted. They had all they needed. They didn't have what they wanted. Oh, this is us. It's something that we all do. They're complaining. Listen to what their complaining cost them, along with the other things. Their complaining kept them from receiving the Lord's provision in the promised land. In the promised land. The land flowing with what? Milk and honey. You want good food? It was coming. And let me tell you, I've been to Israel. The food is delicious. <laughs> I'm going back. The food's great. The next March, we'll be back in, the, back in Israel. And part of the reason is the food is fantastic. It's wonderful food. 
you know what the problem with complaining is? It will destroy you. It will literally destroy you. It will eat you up. If you're a complainer, you are being in the process of being destroyed. Lust will destroy you. Idolatry will destroy you. Testing the Lord will. Sexual immorality. It'll all destroy you. But there's something that happens with complainings. With complainers. I, I, I got to confess, I'm guilty of this, okay? Yesterday, I was at a soccer game, all right? And the game wasn't going too well for our team. And I started complaining. And I complained against the organization. I complained against the referees. I complained the kids weren't playing hard enough. I complained against the fans for the other team. I com- it was one thing after another. I was complaining and complaining and complaining and complaining. And everybody around me was complaining with me. We're all in the same boat. We're all complaining together. And I got home, and it came time. I complained about how far I had to drive home. I complained I didn't have enough time to do my, finish my Bible study. I, com- I started complaining one thing after another. I'm complaining and complaining and complaining. And I get home, and Rebecca says, what's wrong with you? I said, I don't know. I was angry. I was irritable. I was agitated. I was annoyed. I was cranky. Like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I go, I got to go finish up the Bible study. I was unsettled. I was bitter. I was miserable. It was a horrible place to be. But yet I was there. I'm like, I'm, I'm like Lord, what happened? How, how did I get here? What's going on? Why, why do I feel so miserable? You know what I did? I opened up the Bible. I started reading through this morning's scripture again. I've read it many times. I'd already started preparing. I started reading through it, and I got to the part about complaining. And the Lord said to my heart, you're a complainer. You're complaining. I, you know what I said? No, I'm not. <laughs> like you've never done that, right? And he said, yes, you are. He goes, you, and literally, I'm, I'm, I'm having this, this thought through my head, and it's got to be the Lord. And he's saying, you spent all afternoon complaining about the soccer game, about the referees, about the official, everything. The ride home, everything I complained about. And look where it brought you. Miserable and bitter. You're cranky. You're angry. You're annoyed. That's where complaining brought you. I thought, well, Lord, what do I have to do? I repented. I began to worship. And I read his word. That's what changed it. I read the word. The Lord showed me my my error. He showed me my mistake. And you know what happened? Instantaneously, my joy and my peace came back. Because I was right back to with the Lord in the right frame of mind. That's how it works. Had I kept complaining, guess what would happen? It would have been a miserable night. Probably wouldn't even have been here this morning. I'd have called in sick or something. (laughs) You ever been around somebody that complains? What's it do to you? It brings you down. It brings you down. It brings you down. Now, if you're a complainant, see, this is something new the Lord showed me. If you'd asked me, are you a complainant? I said, no, I don't complain. I, I do now, I guess. I, and the funny thing is, I got up this morning, got out of the shower, I said something to Rebecca, and I said, hey, was that complaining? And she goes, kind of. I'm like, ah, I did it again. But see, that's the way the Lord works. Because I have a desire, and I want to live a life pleasing to him. So I say, Lord, if there's something in my life that needs to be changed, will you show it to me? And he showed it to me. I don't like it. I'd like to, I wanted to just skip that section this morning. But it was something in my life that he said, hey, this is something you need to work on. This is, where I, this is where I want to focus on your life. This is where you need to pay attention. If you're a complainer, you're living a miserable life, I promise you. You're, you don't have the peace, you don't have the joy of the Lord. If you want to turn it all around, just admit you're a complainer, repent, ask the Lord to help you, and he will begin to point it out to you every time it happens, and he will convict you of it, and you just simply let it go. Yeah, you're forgiven for it, but you don't continue doing it. Now, Paul says... These are examples that we learn from. Look at verse 11. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition. Look at the last part of that verse. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul thought he was living in the last days. 
If he thought he was living in the last days, what does that say for us? Well, we really got to be in the last days, right? The end of the ages have come. You see, getting back to the Corinthians, the Corinthian Christians seem to have regarded this issue of eating meat. They took this meat, the sacrificed idols, and it was a stumbling block to their brothers, but they figured, that's ah, not that big of a deal. It's just a small issue. Paul wants them, and he wants us to know that it reflects a selfish, self-focused heart, which is the same heart that did the Israelites in in the wilderness. They did not have the self-control to tell themselves no. They weren't going to allow themselves to do that. It may have been a small symptom, but it was a symptom of a great and dangerous disease. We've got to be people who can tell ourselves no. Christian liberties without self-control are dangerous. A Christian life without self-control is not pleasing to God. Not pleasing to God. And the evidence of such a life is this. Lust, idolatry, sexual immorality, testing the Lord, and complaining. If you fall into that, if you're convicted by that, it's real simple. Just repent. The Lord will forgive you and you move past it. He'll convict you in the future and you can grow from it. The Holy Spirit wants to change you if you'll let him. If you look at that list and go, wow, I don't, know, I don't have any problems there. I am cool. This is good. I love this Bible study. I'll just, this is wonderful. It's fantastic. Just for next week, verse 12 says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's for you next week. Don't miss next week's, okay? But for most of us, we read a list like that and go, there's only five little things. How come I can't get them right? And we need to understand something, that we have the Lord to help us. We don't do it on our own. It's not just my self-control. But if an athlete can exercise the self-control to win a race, we should be ex able to exercise the self-control to receive a crown that will last forever. That's what Paul's saying here. Remember also, you're going to be an example. But you get to decide, am I going to be a good example or a bad example? Because your kids, your family, your friends, they're all watching you. And they can learn from you, but do they want to learn what to do or do they want to learn what not to do? Let's live a life that is well-pleasing to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Wow, Lord, sometimes it hurts. I know for me personally, this week was... You brought out something that needed to be brought out. I thank you for that. I pray that you'll help us. Lord, we, we, I pray that every person here has a, life, has a desire to live a life pleasing to you. I pray that as we see these things, as we brought out these five points that was unpleasing to you by the Israelites in the wilderness, and we see them in Corinth, and now we see them in our life as well. Or we not just let them fly by, but will we address them? Would you move in our hearts, and would you... Help us address them. Would you convict us? And would you give us the power to overcome them? May your word ring true in our lives. And may we stand on your promises. Lord, we know that your grace and mercy endure forever. But we also know that you don't take sin lightly. We read the number of people and the plagues that came upon Israel for their rebellion. Lord, may we not be in rebellion to you. May we be believers who are walking a life pleasing to you. And would you show us exactly where and how to do that? In Jesus' name.